Every good story begins. It's going to be a long morning. Every good story begins once upon a time. And every good story ends. They all lived happily ever after. That's the story. The Bible begins like that. Once upon a time, God created the heavens and the earth. The Bible ends, they all lived happily ever after. Revelation 21 verse 1, God creates a new earth and a new heaven. And as we look at the beginning and the end, we're left with the question, what on earth happened in between? What happened to the earth and the heavens that God had made that one day he would make a new heaven and a new earth? Well, that's our story. In fact, it's not our story. That's God's story. And we'll look at it through these weeks together. Now, obviously, we're going to go fast. We're going to be uh, moving at a, at a big picture perspective. It's going to be like going to London, Rome and Paris, sitting back in the evening and saying, I've done Europe. It's that kind of uh, pace, but it has validity, just like looking at the Bible in detail has validity, because the Bible speaks to us on every level. And so on a Sunday morning, typically, we will look at the macroscopic level, the big picture theme. We'll fly, as it were, uh, in a helicopter over the terrain and perhaps come into land here and there to have a quick look around before getting on board again. But because we want to learn and listen and live God's word every day, that we know is not enough. That's why every day we're inviting you to open your Bible, to have a daily feast, to get into the detail, the riches, the treasures that are there at the microscopic level. So let's begin Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 to, uh, sorry, chapters 1. See, I'm so used to it, verses 1 to 11. No, Genesis chapters 1 to 11. That's this morning. Next week is Abraham. Week after is Joseph. And then before we end January, we're into the Exodus and we're on heading towards the promised land. Good. You seem keen about that. Okay, as we come to Genesis uh, uh, and these early chapters, everyone immediately thinks about the debates about the creation of the world. And in a sense, we miss the point of these verses because we allow our modern perspective, our modern questions to dominate. Now, I'm not suggesting for a minute that those modern questions are unimportant. They are vitally important. And when I preached on these passages about a year ago now, and I'll put a link onto my blog, I meant to do it, but I haven't uh, yet. I'll try and do that today. Uh, that can take you back to that and some of the material that I uh, put there around that time to help us engage with those questions. What is Genesis 1 to 11 saying about our modern Issues around how the world was created and so on and so forth. But what we absolutely have to remember is that they are our 21st century questions. And when the writer wrote Genesis, he did not have those questions in his mind. He was not trying to answer them. And if you open the Bible and say, well, it doesn't give us the answer, it was not trying to. We need a different perspective. And the most important, ultimately... The most important perspective is what is God saying to us through these verses? And that's our agenda this morning. So, we begin with the big plan. Chapters 1 
and 2. You need your Bible open in front of you, yeah? So check it's there, okay? Uh, have it just open on your lap. If you had one of those uh, uh, pretty Bibles that you can't read for Christmas, shame on you. Uh, tuck that away in your handbag and use a pew Bible. But if you've got a nice Bible that you can read, then whip it out. And if it's leather bound, then wave it around, show it to the people around, because that's a sign of true godliness. The big plan. Chapter 1 is a mind-boggling picture, a panoramic view of the universe. God literally speaks it out and it was done. He speaks out light and light appears, as I said, travelling just under 300 million metres a second, comes blazing out of God's mouth across the universe. And it's just packed into that little verse that we gloss over every time we read that chapter. God speaks and the land and the sea and the fish and the flowers, the animals, the night, the day, everywhere you look, God is speaking it out. The whole of creation, as it were, Every vision of the world points to a God who with majesty and ease simply spoke the whole thing into being. The psalmist was right. The heavens declare the glory of God and the skies proclaim the works of his hands. Genesis 1 is saying in effect all this is is God's. Never mind about the how for a moment. This is God's. It's from him, it's for him, it points to him, it reveals him. And so you get this rapid burst of creation, and then that final declaration, God saw that it was good. Even God was wowed by what he'd made. Have you ever made something and over-impressed yourself? God goes, wow, I did that with just my mouth. I ought to be careful what I say. But then, but then the pace slows right down. Before the chapter closes, we get a sudden insight into the mind of God. It interrupts the flow of boom, 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 boom. It begins to slow down. God reveals his motives and his purpose. God begins to describe what he's doing in creating something altogether different. Then God said, let us make man in our image. In our likeness, let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth and over all the creation that move along the ground. That was just getting ready. Boom, 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 boom. Now, let's do this. Let's do this. So God, verse 27, created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said, be fruitful and increase in number. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant and to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds of the air, blah, 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 blah. And it was very, verse 31, very good. We are the crowning glory of God's creation. And the whole of the next chapter unpacks those few verses that were coming into land at the end of chapter 1. Look at some of the key things in chapter 2. Look at how man was made. Remember what God was doing. He was just speaking stuff out. Boom, light, boom, plants, boom, land, boom, sea. Then listen, verse 7. The Lord God, here we go, sorry. The Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground. What do you notice? What do you notice? Boom, 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 boom. And the Lord God formed the man 
from the dust of the ground. Suddenly it's personal. Suddenly it's much more intimate. What what do you imagine? The God of the universe who's spoken the stars into existence. What's the picture? Somehow this God who's bigger than this universe of its thousands of billions of galaxies, somehow this God is, is stooping down to the dust of the earth. He fashions us with his own Hands, God himself moulding the dust into arms and legs and eyes and brains and skeleton. We are personally made by God's own hands. And if you're not convinced, what happens next is quite extraordinary. The Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils. Say it with me, the breath of life. And the man became a living being. What is this breath? There were loads of animals that were alive. It's not that. Genesis 1 tells us that. Boom, you've got a dog and boom, you've got a cat. If you love dogs and cats, they're nothing compared to us. Sorry about that. Fish and whales and monkeys and boom. They were suddenly alive. This is altogether different. This is the very life of God. We were made to breathe his very breath. Made in his likeness, relationally, personally, to bear the... That's the plan. That's the plan for you and me, to breathe every moment the very breath of God. To live every moment full of his very life. This is not air in my lungs. This is altogether different. Although I need that too. But that wasn't enough. It wasn't complete. Verse 18, it's not good for the man to be alone. Man needed help, everybody. But you knew that. It wasn't complete until God made Eve. And God made Eve in an equally personal way. Where I'm going to take a rib and I'm going to mould it. I'm going to fashion it. I'm going to hold it in my hands. It's going to be something that I personally make. It's going to have my personal touch and stamp all over her. I'm moulding her into the beauty I long for her to be. And Adam just went, wow. Wow, man. That's the one. Wow, man. Woman. Eve not taken from Adam's head to rule him, not taken from his feet that he might rule her, but taken from his side that they might together live the life, breathe the breath. And there they are in that garden walking together, uh, hand in hand with each other and hand in hand with God. Everything they needed, fully alive like we can barely imagine. Beautiful words towards the end of chapter 2. They felt no There's no one here who knows what it is to live without shame. It pollutes every, almost every moment of our days. Here they are. And they knew no shame. It had to be real though. God wasn't into any of this puppet stuff or, or, or leading by some kind of dictatorship. God wanted real love. 
Love needs to be given. Love is a choice. The life that he'd given was uh, of a love that was self-giving. The life that he, the breath that he was breathing on them was a, was a breath that would offer oneself freely to another. And so God said, you can share all this freedom for as long as you choose me. And for as long as you enjoy this freedom, you can do everything you like in this wonderful world. You can live the life and breathe the breath. Just that tree. Just that tree. That's the only sign that you continue to choose me. And they didn't. And so we get the big four. Chapters three to five. To be honest, it was a mighty crash, wasn't it? And the consequences were to plumb the depths of every aspect of our lives and fill every moment of our days. Even now, thousands of years on. Every day is marred. Every life is scarred by this almighty crash. And in every sense, they were lost. Altogether lost. And one day, God comes walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Adam. Adam, where are you? God knew where Adam was. But for the first time, Adam was beginning to understand. For the first time ever, Adam and Eve began to experience emotions that they'd never ever known. They were altogether lost. Firstly, they were lost from God. The breath of life that had filled them began to drain away. Suddenly, where they'd felt so close, now they felt so empty. Where once they'd felt covered and protected, suddenly they were feeling vulnerable and naked. And that haunting word, they knew shame. And a great chasm had appeared. The sound of, of God walking in the garden had always brought joy and delight. But suddenly, the sound of their footsteps, the sound of God's footsteps, and their fear rose inside them. Panic and dread. They began to hide away. How can you hide from God? But in vain they tried to hide from Him. Because joy had turned to fear. And comfort had turned to dread. They felt exposed, ashamed, and naked. They were lost from God and they were lost from life. Their lives would now be a million miles away from the life God had planned for them. The struggle, the strife, the pain all begins to dawn from verse 14 and following. And worst of all, they began to die. Never in the plan, but they began to die. It's interesting though, that from God's perspective... How different his perspective is to ours. From our perspective, this life is everything. We cling to it for all we are worth. And in some senses, rightly so, because it's all we know. Yet from God's perspective, this life is now, what? So far from what he planned. This life so different from what he ever intended. This life now such a poor, sullied, grubby reflection of the real thing that this life must not be allowed to go on forever. Better that we die than live this life forever. So God banishes them from the garden. For years I didn't understand it. I thought God was being petulant and harsh. I knew the end of the story. I knew he wanted them back. So why did he banish them from the garden? It, I imagine God is a bit like a, a, an angry parent, you know, when you're quite reasonable and you're telling off for about 10 seconds and then for the next half an hour you're just out of control. No, that's just me. 
And, and you say things that are ridiculous. Oh, go to your room. Get out of my sight. Get out of the way. And, and I thought God was doing that. Oh, get out of my way. I don't want anything more to do with you. Get out of the garden. No, no, no. No, there's grace here. Get them out of the garden. So they do not keep feeding on the tree of life. So they do not cling to this life forever. God in his grace was already making room for the new life he would bring to me. But for this new life to be mine, I'd have to learn to let go of the life I had. It is a grace that this life doesn't go on forever. Thirdly, we became lost from each other. Lost from each other. Chapters 4 and 5 tell the story, the first murder and the generations seek deeper into sin. And then we get possibly the saddest verses in the Bible. Who knows what verses I might be talking about. Anyone with me? Saddest verses in the Bible? Brilliant. Who said that? Nigel. Up there. Sorry, in the gods. Absolutely. Chapter 6. The saddest verse, I think, in the whole of the Bible. Here it is. The Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become, and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. The Lord God was grieved that he had made man on the earth, and his heart was filled with pain. That's a moment, isn't it, in history? That's a kairos moment, a a moment when everything changes. And his heart was filled with pain. And so from the big fall, we move to the big flood, chapters 6 to 10. God sent a flood, but he saved a righteous man, Noah, or was it Evan Baxter? One of them came first. Just one man, it rained for 40 days and 40 nights. Why? Because God judges sin. Early in the Bible, we're, we're, we're building these, the, the writers building these building blocks of understanding for us. God judges sin. He will not let sin go unpunished. But the other side of that coin, and maybe more comforting, God will not let sin destroy the world. Hallelujah. Sometimes we think this world is spinning chaotically out of control. God said, that's enough. I will not let this happen to the world that I've made. He's made a promise that he won't do it again. We can be sure of that promise. But there came a time in history, God said, enough's enough. And there will come another time in history when Jesus will come back and he will say, enough is enough is enough. And so it began to rain for 40 days and for 40 nights. But what else does it teach us? It teaches us that God's desire is to save. God's desire is to save. I'm going to rescue Noah and his family and the animals. We're going to do this again. I'm not wiping the earth off the map. I'm not wiping it out of my sight and ultimately out of my presence. I want to rescue this which is lost. God's desire is to save. 
Sin is not ultimately the master or the final word. But God can and will rescue it from the grip of sin. Noah gets quite a lot of accolade in the New Testament. He deserves it. Building an ark in the middle of a desert took quite a lot of faith. By faith, Noah, when warned about things not yet seen, in holy fear, built an ark to save his family. By his faith, he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. But the story of the flood has a very sad and sobering ending. Noah was the most righteous man, the most upright man. If what we read of him in the Bible is to be believed, and it is, then he was more upright and more righteous than me, and probably you too. He was one of God's best. He had magnificent faith. But he too was sin-ridden like the rest of us. The cancer that had taken hold of the earth had also taken hold of him. No one was immune. No one free. And through his line, evil would again flourish. And surprisingly, just as the waters are drying around the ark, we read of Noah doing shameful things. We're all infected. And we're all responsible. And we're all without excuse. The sickness of the soul, the Bible teaches us here at the beginning, is killing us all. None of us are immune. The Bible teaches very clearly that the evil that causes men to do despicable things, the evil that causes people to be found dead in their flats and girls to be found dead on the side of a road, is the evil that lies in my heart and yours. Noah was a righteous man who lived by, yet in his heart was the essence of the evil that corrupts our world. We stand only in God's grace, don't we? The evil around the world is not something out there, but it's something in here. If I fail to take that seriously, I'll make a complete ash of my life. The evil that's in here. Never be too busy pointing the finger about the evil out there. If Noah, the righteous man, could infect the earth like we know today. So like drowning men, we're desperate to save ourselves. But the final story of the prologue, the big tower, reminds us that we can't. The empty space that God's life once filled has left a craving. (coughs) Excuse me. Has left a craving that constantly gnaws away at humankind. The imprint left by God's hand still longs again for God's touch. If only we could reach God now. If only we could become like God. If if only we could find what we've lost. If only somehow we could grab back what's been taken from us. So they did what we have done in our generation and what everyone has done in every different generation. In different ways, mind you. They did what we've all tried to do. 
They tried to rescue themselves. They tried to save themselves. They said, well, remember it's a culture that believed that God lived just above the clouds in the heavens. That's where God was. So they said to themselves, come, let's build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens. We'll do it. We'll rescue ourselves. We'll, we'll climb back up. God's response is incredibly decisive. Again, at first, it seems that God's response is harsh, but on, on the contrary. On the contrary, because for as long as we believe, as long as we think, we can get back to God by ourselves. For as long as we think we can save ourselves, we're stuffed. So God thundered from the heavens. No. No, you can't reach me by yourself. No, you cannot cure the sickness of your own heart. You cannot mend the evil of your ways. There is a plan, but you cannot make it. There is a bridge, but you cannot build it. There is a saviour, a rescuer, but not from the earth. Earth can never rise to heaven, however big the tower might be. And so the scene is set. If the earth cannot rise to heaven, then the only hope is for heaven to stoop down to earth. If the plan cannot begin with man, then if there's ever to be a plan, it'll have to begin with God. And at the end of chapter 11, see it there, we're doing your Bibles, there's a little trailer, a little advert A little kind of teaser as to all that's going to happen next. I love the way chapter 11 just leaves us hanging. It's bananas, really, in a way. Suddenly, out of nowhere, the scene moves, verse 27 following, the scene moves to a family settling in northern Mesopotamia. Who on earth are these people? No idea. They come out of nowhere. The aged father, terror, dies. No explanation is given as to who they are or where, why they are there. But our attention is alerted. God said, look, look at these things you've begun to... I've created this world, you've messed it up. I I long to rescue it, I will have to judge it. You cannot build a tower to reach me. There needs to be... Now, look at that family. Terah, he died. There's Abraham and Sarah. Look at that family. And then the credits roll. And the prologue comes to an end. In truth, the rescue plan that would bring heaven to earth was already underway. Hallelujah. In just a few final minutes, I want to highlight a few clues in these verses and calling them grace notes. Grace notes. You see, this plan was put in place, the Bible tells us, before the foundation of the world. And like the beginning of an episode of Inspector Morse, you get little clues about the plan. In these verses, there are little clues here and there about the plan. Just highlight a few of them for you. Firstly, notice, and I've mentioned it already, notice the God who stoops down. Remember the God who stooped down to the dust and formed us? Notice the God who stoops down. I can't read those verses without thinking of the day God would stoop down to Bethlehem. 
Cannot read those verses without thinking about the day God would stoop down, not just to a a Bethlehem's cradle, but to a criminal's cross. Makes me think about that day that Jesus stooped down in the dust and scrawled away, and in doing so, saved the life of an adulterous woman. Notice the God who stoops down. Notice the man who crushes Satan's head. When God begins to pronounce judgment on Adam and Eve, before that judgment on Satan himself, here in the very chapter that the fall comes, there's a promise, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers, still the promise, He will crush your head. A man born of woman will crush Satan's head. And you will strike his heel. A God who stoops down, a man who crushes Satan's head. Thirdly, notice, a sacrifice that covers their shame. Have you noticed that? They're just about to leave the garden and they've got these fig leaves kind of Delicately balanced. And God says, I want to give you something else. Something else that will work much better, but something else that's going to point forward to all that I'm going to do. Have these skins. Have these skins that cost someone their life. Have these skins from an animal sacrifice. Because one day, someone's sacrifice will cover your shame. Makes me want to cry. See, this is way back. This is thousands of years before Jesus. And it's all there. It's all there. God that's giving himself already. The God that stoops down, who will again stoop down. The man who will, who'd have thought the man who'd crush his head would be God Himself? And through the blood of a sacrifice, my shame is covered. Let's be quiet, shall we?